Kablamo. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out of the box, bindings, component configuration directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 85 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey there. Lucas Rubelke. Hello. Ward Bell. Howdy doody. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, Ben Nadell. How are you guys doing? Better than you, Ben. We're doing better. <laughs> now, we've, had you on the, start. we've had you <laughs> on the show we'd before. we'd get it right out there, right in front. We've yeah, had you on the show before. Do you want to introduce yourself, though, real quick? Sure. My name is uh, Ben Nadell, and I am the co-founder of a company called Envision App. We build a kind of design, collaboration, and prototyping platform. But primarily, I think of myself as as an engineer with a penchant for product design and development, and uh, a huge, huge fan of JavaScript in general, and for the last several years, Angular JS specifically. Yeah, so recently you've been doing an amazing series of posts about your forays into Angular 2. And before we get into what that's like, are you looking at it because it amuses you or because you have other ideas in mind? Because you have this substantial investment in Angular 1. Sure. I'm a huge fan of Angular. It makes sense to me in a lot of ways, and it, I've had a lot of success with Angular 1. I'm definitely invested in trying to use Angular 2 in the future, what that actually looks like in a practical sense, most likely it'd be more of a, of a greenfield effort, meaning I highly doubt that we'll take parts of our existing application, our series of applications, and, and upgrade them to Angular 2. I understand that there's the all of the ng forward and the ng upgrade stuff, but I think that probably add more complexity than we'd, than we'd want to deal with. But if we were to roll out 
new portions of an application that sort of stood alone. Angular 2 is definitely something that I would pull for, at least discuss internally with the, uh, with the engineering team at large. You can't spend more than a minute looking at your site without realizing that you are uh, writing it in a very strange dialect. What the heck is it? <laughs> so that's, that's a great question. I do all of my R&D in ES5. And Wait, speci- what? <laughs> I do, yeah, I do all of my, uh, my R&D in ES5 and specifically with the intent to be able to put the entire demo on a, on a single page of code which I get a lot of pushback for, both for the ES5 and for the single-page portions. But I find it to be much easier to think and reason about code when I can see it all on a single page. And I also, even just from an editor standpoint, right? Like, let's say I have a token that I need to represent a class, and then I have to inject that class into another class. When I'm looking at my IDE, it's really easy to, say, double-click on the token and then just jump to other instances of the token in the same page of code, I can quickly jump back and forth between where things are defined and where they're used. And it sort of removes that that kind of cognitive load of not only do I have multiple pieces of code, but they're spread across multiple files. And now I need to find those files and I need to keep that mental model in my head all the time. You but know the, that uh, if you wrote in TypeScript, uh, the, the IDE could help you with that. Well, so I... I mean, that, now, now you, you get into a whole tooling conversation. So I use Sublime Text as my IDE. And I use IDE in a very loose sense. It's basically a really fast, really fancy text editor. Even when I was going through the five-minute quick start guide and the tour of heroes, uh, I installed like a really old, I think it was from Microsoft, a TypeScript plugin that did nothing but the syntax highlighting because everything else, like the, the really fancy TypeScript plugin, actually seemed to weigh down the IDE way too much for me. The keys were getting laggy and, and uh, so on and so forth. So I just abandoned that altogether. And if I was going to do it in TypeScript, then I'd have to use probably System.js, and then System.js would have to load something from a, from a secondary file. And I just, I don't know. I didn't want to have to deal with it. As much as I know you guys in the past shows have talked about, like, oh, you know, now is the time for developers to embrace transpilation and build steps. And, you know, gone is the days of, hey, let me update this line of code and then refresh my browser. As much as I think that probably is absolutely true for production apps, it's not necessarily the world that I want to live in for a, oh, hey, how does an RxJS stream work? Let me write a piece of code here and just run it in the browser. Like, I don't want to have to jump through all that. So I've sort of settled on a single-page model uses a simplified version of require.js to do AMD module loading. So it's all sort of defined and required in a single page. And that just makes it easy for me to think about. I hope other people can grasp it. So Ben, anybody who visits your blog, aside from the excitement that they will get from that, their heart will definitely race when they see the peculiar dialect of JavaScript that you're using in there. Uh, what's going on? What's your choice? What's driving it? Sure, absolutely. So I have chosen to write all of my research and demo code in ES5. And not only in ES5, but I also use a format that keeps all of the example code in a a single file. And I get a lot of pushback both about using ES5 and putting it all in a single file. But for me personally, that makes it a lot easier to think about. I find that I can scroll up and down in a page a lot faster and a lot more simply than jumping from file to file. Uh, and, and oftentimes it sort of allows the top-down 
readability of the file to tell a story. Meaning, you know, when you have things in separate files, it's alphabetical in your file tray or whatever you use. But in a single page, you get to sort of walk the reader through the importance of pieces of code. So you have your, for example, application bootstrapping at the top, and then you have your root component. And then maybe below that, you have the service that's included by the root component, or maybe one of the directives that's included on the root component. And then below that, you have some sort of service that mocks out HTTP requests. And it just allows me to, one, keep a really simple R&D workflow where I don't have to worry about build steps. I don't have to worry about you know, compiling and transpiling and so on and so forth. There's so much to learn with Angular that I try to keep the actual mechanics of putting it together as simple as possible. And uh, I, I guess the only other thing I would add is that ES5, I'm using ES5 as a sort of byproduct of that. I want to put it all on one page, and that just doesn't work very well unless you start transpiling with something. And in retrospect, actually really enjoy using ES5 because it sort of forces you to figure out what parts of the code are the TypeScript parts, what parts of the code are the actual Angular 2 parts, what parts would have been the ES6 parts. And to some degree, that forces you to understand how it's all wired together. Meaning like, I can't just throw a TypeScript decorator in a place without actually knowing, well, well, how is that actually wired together? Oh, it has to call a dot component, then it has to call a dot class, and then the class has to reference the constructor. And then inside of that, I have to be able to register things on the prototype. And that makes sense for, or like, I have, to, sorry, I have to register things in the prototype for lifecycle methods, because if I do it as instant methods, Angular won't pick it up. And these are like a lot of things you wouldn't even think are variations when you're using ES6 or TypeScript or, or, or something to that nature. So in retrospect, it's actually had a lot of value for me in forcing me to trip over things that I might not have had to think about in the past. Or well, it certainly has had that effect for me as a reader of the code because I'm so used to seeing everything in TypeScript. And then I, you know, I, I say, what is this? Oh, this is, a, this is a really interesting way to look at it. You are making use of what they call the DSL. I mean, I do see you using some of that in order to be able to define something. And the Angular 2 team, they've done a really good job, I think, of making the what would have been TypeScript decorations easy to consume in an ES5 context with chaining of methods. And some of it's a little quirky, like creating a optional injectable parameters to a constructor, for example. Like it's a little bit funky. You have to define an array of different parameter metadatas. But you have to do the same thing in TypeScript. It's just all in line and much more succinct. So it's, you don't think about what it's doing probably. Yeah, I can tell you that you can, uh, that it is possible. Uh, not only is it interesting in its own right, and I think that you are, there are so many people who want to put the transpilation stuff aside and would like to stick with ES5, and you're one of the few people I know who's really invested in that. And so there should be a lot of people coming to see your stuff to see how it plays out that way. Because after you get, you know, after uh, for me, after I get over the initial shock, I'm learning a lot about how you think and learning a lot about Angular 2 that way. So you are definitely getting the message across, even though you're living in a cave with uh, <laughs> flint knives. So. Well, and it's interesting, too, because you, you see how people think about the code, right? So people will push back and say, hey, you guys should, should really be doing this as TypeScript because you're, you have code all over the place that would be much easier to read. And I always think to myself, yeah, but some of it would be more succinct. But the, the actual like top-down readability is, is very similar. Like I have requires at the top where you would have imports, and I have 
you know, ng.core.component.class where you would have a decorator and then I have my constructor and then I have a definition of methods. So I think like a lot of people don't necessarily react to the, oh, you're not using TypeScript. I think, and this is just a theory here, I think more people react to the fact that I'm not using prototype-based class definitions, meaning I'm using the class constructor like a uh, factory, for instances, that then returns you know, exposed method. I'm, I'm using the, the, the module pattern as opposed to defining all of the methods on the prototype like you would have to do probably or are, are much more likely to do when using ES6 and or TypeScript. So I think people push back, but they don't necessarily know why they're pushing back. And it's, uh, it's interesting for me to see that, at least. Well, you do use it as a storytelling format. It does read from top to bottom like, okay, first I want to tell you this, and now I want to tell you that. And you're right that, that when people break that up, as they ultimately would in a production application, you, you can't tell by looking at the left-hand navigation panel uh, what, the, what the story is. And you definitely are telling a story as you read the code, and you're great with vertical white space. You really... <laughs> you really think about that? No, I, I don't think. I, I think that's uh, no. I, think I, that I seriously is a very positive thing. I am very, very regimented about my white space, and a lot of people are very unhappy with it. So it's it's nice to hear that, that someone values. Oh, no, I think you're making you're making so much sense. Okay, but enough praising of Ben. You, you've been banging your head in this Angular two stuff for a while, and what are you liking? What's driving you crazy? Sure. So one phrase that, that I've been sort of mulling over in my head is that learning Angular 2, and I don't mean to be offensive here, but it's like I had a stroke and now I have to relearn all of the things that I knew in an Angular 1 context. All of the, the tricks and the mechanics and the wiring together and the interconnectivity of things in Angular 1 either need to be relearned how they work in Angular 2, or it's just things that don't happen in Angular 2, and you sort of need to remap your brain onto how that works. It's an interesting uphill battle, to be honest. I mean, I'm loving it, but it's an uphill battle for sure. And it, it reminds me, there was a show a while back called Malcolm in the Middle, and there's an animated GIF or GIF that, uh, that goes around the internet where uh, Hal, the father, he, uh, he goes to turn on the light, and the light bulb's not working. So then he goes into the closet to get a light bulb, and the shelf is kind of wobbly. So then he goes to the drawer to get the screwdriver to fix the shelf, and the drawer is squeaking. So then he goes into the garage to get the WD-40, and the WD-40 is empty. So then he goes to turn on the car because he has to go to the store, and the car is not working right. So then he's under the car trying to fix the engine, and his wife walks in, and, he's, and she's like, hey, didn't I uh, ask you to go fix the light bulb? And he gets up, he's like, what does it look like I'm doing? And I feel, <laughs> I, I feel very much like... Like, that's the Angular 2 learning process. It's like, oh, I want to make, for example, a custom drop-down menu. Okay, well, now I have to figure out how to have content transcluded into the drop-down menu that represents items. And then I need to figure out, well, okay, well, I can do that, but now how do I get uh, the two-way data binding with the ng model to work or with something like a value and a value-changed event? And then I kind of trip over that. And then I have to figure out, okay, well, now that I have the items transcluded, what happens if one of the items gets removed from the list or added to the list. Okay, so now how do I monitor that? Do I do some sort of parent-child communication? Do I do something like a, like a view children query list? And, well, okay, maybe I can figure that out. Well, what happens if I don't want to have like a simple text output for the root of the HTML element of the, of the HTML dropdown? So, okay, now I have an option that I want to be able to project HTML into the root. Well, how do I do that? When I have to figure out how to access... DOM nodes, and I have to do that in a safe way because one of the really, really huge uphill battles 
at least for me mentally, is this whole idea that the Dom is completely abstracted away in order to facilitate working in other environments like web workers, like surfer environments where I don't necessarily have a Dom that I can work with. And that that's kind of terrifying because now I feel like it used to be, okay, I had the link function, link functions where I could access the DOM and I had the controllers and the services and that was all about logic. And now it's like, I don't want to screw anyone else over, right? So like what happens if I have a widget that's inside of a widget that's inside of a widget that happens to touch the DOM? Now does that break server-side rendering? I don't know. I don't know anything about server-side rendering. So that's, a, that's like a whole, that's like fighting an invisible ghost now that's being supported by Angular 2 that I don't even know how to, to see. So that's terrifying and exciting at the same time. So you start one place, and but before you can, you have one goal in mind, and but you, in order to get there, you find yourself going all over the place and learning pieces, and perhaps even forgetting where you were trying to go in the, in, when you started. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have I have incomplete demos that I've been working on for literally weeks. They're just branches in my local GitHub that, like every week, I'm like, oh right, I know how to do another part of that. Let me go back and revisit that again. Well, I want to remind you before our listeners throw up their hands that you are also famous for a graph that has probably made it on more PowerPoints than any other graph, <laughs> yeah. which is the learning curve graph. We should make a link to that in the show, in which you had much the same, told much the same story about Angular 1 when you were first learning it. Absolutely. I think the, I think the, the graph will be very similar except for the first point, which will be, oh, I know a lot about Angular 1. I'm going to be able to sail through Angular 2. And then there's a <laughs> deep drop-off. You realize, oh, everything that I know about Angular 1, uh, that is not helping me anymore. You definitely got to put that slide. Yeah. <laughs> so I know you have some likes and dislikes. So sure. give us some likes and then give us some dislikes. And then, then we'll tell you why you're wrong. Definitely. <laughs> uh, so I have to say... I really, really like the new syntax for the HTML and the brackets and the parentheses. And I, I know when I first saw it in slides and in presentations, I was like, you guys are crazy. That is nuts. And it's one of those things where it, it wasn't even a gradual adoption. It was, I saw it, it looked crazy. I wrote my first demo and I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. That's great. This makes a lot of things a lot clearer. It makes the types of attributes a lot clearer. It makes discerning where events come from a lot clearer. It was, it was truly something you just had to use one time to be able to, to kind of feel that magic. And, uh, and I have been really liking that. Kind of along with that, doing things like setting the classes and setting the styles with class.name uh, and, and style.name and optional.px at the end, things that would have ordinarily been really large ng class objects, you know, that typically would have wrapped lines because you had to set so many classes or so many styles. Now you can break apart you can and tease them out into an HTML format that makes a lot more sense. And um, I just, I've, I've been finding the syntax much more pleasing to work with. And, and the fact that everything is a component now. I mean, I know a lot of people used components in Angular 1. I was very much a sort of attribute directive kind of person in Angular 1 for a really, really long time. And, uh, and being forced to do that in Angular 2, definitely, you see the light, you see the, the joy in that. But, you know, it's not all, it's not all joy. There are things that I, that I do miss from, from Angular 1. And um, Likewise. Yeah. Oh, okay, so for example... Uh, link functions. 
Blink functions, I think, had a very specific purpose in Angular 1, and that was to be the glue, right, that binds the controllers to the templates, to, to do the DOM interactions uh, that your controller is not supposed to know about. Now, it turns out that we can sort of hack that together in Angular 2 because we can say, for example, create a component that matches on the selector element, my widget, but then you can also create a directive, a, a non-component directive that matches on my widget. And then that directive can provide this, you know, quote unquote link function, whereas the uh, my widget component can do the kind of what we would have traditionally thought of the controller. And, uh, and, and that way you can find ways to isolate DOM specific behaviors that you don't necessarily want to muddy up in what I still sort of think of as controllers in an Angular 2 context controllers and templates which would work together to become these these, these components. Yeah, so, I absolutely agree. The, the, the attribute directive, when you inject the element ref into it, you are exactly where you were with a link function, seemed to me. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there's some very practical things, like imagine that you have a, like a pop-up or, or a drop-down menu, and all you want to do is close the menu when someone clicks outside of the, of the host element, right? Like I click outside of a drop-down menu, I want to close it. I click outside of a pop-up, I want to close it. Well, there's no native click outside host binding, which side story, you can create that because you can plug and play the DOM plugins in Angular 2, which is really nice. But if you don't have that and you need to rely on, on logic within the component to be able to do that, then you have to start tracking events, and which feels very much tangential to the concept of whatever component you're building. Yep. So it's nice to put that logic isolated inside of some other sort of parallel directive that also lives on the same component that says, oh, I'll take care of listening to the DOM outside of the component, and I'll just reach into an injected reference to this component. And I'll say, I'll call dot .close popup or dot .close or dot .dismiss when someone clicks outside. And you don't have to worry about that. You just go about exposing that public API, and I'll worry about interacting with the DOM at large kind of a thing, which I really enjoyed in Angular 1. Have you figured out how to do that in Angular 2? Yeah, yeah. You can, it's, uh, I mean, so you can, one, you can create custom DOM plugins. So, you know, right now you can just do like a parentheses click or parentheses mouse down, so on and so forth. Well, you can define any kind of DOM binding that you actually like. There's a, there's a multi-token, I can't remember what it's called offhand, but it's like a event plugin something or other, DOM event plugin, something like that. So you can say, hey, uh, if someone tries to bind to an event, called click outside, then use this uh, event listener. And then this is how you unbind the event listener. So if you have something like that at a, like a platform level or at an application level, then it becomes super easy. Now I have a, a, a pop-up and I just bind a host listener that says, hey, if someone does a click outside event, close the menu, piece of cake. But if you can't depend on that, then you can always have two directives bound to the same element where one of them is the quote-unquote component directive, and one of them is just a, a non-component directive. And the non-component directive can have the isolated external DOM management, so to speak, and then it can just call the same close method that's exposed on the component. So you sort of have two, com two directives listening to the same host, one of them dealing with the DOM, one of them dealing with the view and yeah, sort I, of business I, logic. I, I, I feel a Ben uh, Nadell <laughs> post coming up. Absolutely, I think I, I probably have one somewhere. I can I can always link it in the show notes. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
because that's going to that's an important thing. The whole business of how components communicate with each other and, communi- and directors communicate with each other is an important topic, and it's not an obvious one. And uh, uh, I think that that's something uh, we could use more of. Uh, and more from you. Yeah, it's very interesting. And the whole provider chain and how it works at different levels is, is fascinating and something I haven't dug too deeply into. But you can definitely see that there's a lot of a lot of flexibility, which I always feel like the flexibility is a double-edged sword. It's the flexibility to do things in new and interesting and isolated and decoupled ways. But the flip side of that is, okay, well, now I have to figure out how to do that, meaning not just from a mechanical standpoint, like how do I you know, wire things together, but the should I do it this way? And what are the trade-offs? Mm-hmm. Like, what, you know, why can't I have a globally shared HTTP client? Like, should my module have its own HTTP client that comes with its own base default request options? Or, or you know, what happens if I need to have a portion of the app deal with cross-site request forgery prevention, which Angular 1 sort of just did across the board based on the XSRF token cookie, right? So now that's not, a, that's not a core part of the Angular application anymore. So now I have to implement that. And do I have to implement it across the board, or do I want to do it just for my sort of like a API service, uh, like collection of service classes? Do they have their own? Right. You have a choice. Yeah. You could do yeah, it across yeah. the board, but you now have a choice, and you're asking yourself, well, uh, now that I have a choice, which way should I go? Whereas in Angular One, you didn't have a choice. There's just one DI, you know, one namespace. Really. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's you know you have to become uh, not just an application developer. You have to become an application architect, and that's kind of, it's a little scary. It's a little scary if you if you haven't had the the, the leeway to make those kind of decisions before. So. Uh, I, and sorry, I guess I, going back to what I do like about Angular 2, and there's a lot I like, um, but, but one of the great things is being able to sort of group together collections of services and components and directives that all work together so that I can say, give, you know, we see the, the Angular uses this all the time, that I can get the HTTP providers, which is actually a collection of providers. It's not just a single thing, or I can get a collection of directives. And what's great about that is that it really simplifies the consumption. Right? Like if I need to get, say, like an accordion directive going, I don't necessarily have to explicitly say, well, here's my, my kind of group, my container directive, and then here's my you know, group directive, and here's something else kind of a directive that all works together. You can just say, here are my accordion directives as a single token that I can provide to the view, and now all of those directives become available. Same with providers. Here, you know, here are all of my HTTP providers. And you don't have to worry about that. That's actually a collection of a whole bunch of different types of things. Yeah. That was like a little happy, happy, joy, joy dance when I found that. I was like, oh, that's amazing. And, and, it's, and it's amazing, too, because it gives you flexibility in how you want to sort of uh, evolve a particular piece of functionality. Meaning, let's say I have a component that uh, is defined as a, as a single directive. And I can expose that as a specific directive or as a collection that only has one thing in it. And then down the road, I want to, you know, bump the version number. And here, actually, this now contains two directives or three directives or a directive. And, and uh, I guess a pipe wouldn't make sense. But the consuming context doesn't necessarily need to know that because they just have the collection. And you happen to have added another thing to that provider collection or that directive collection. And it just automatically gets pulled in. And I don't know, it seems to make that kind of uh, the, the upgrade path from version to version of a particular component 
make a lot more sense. Yeah, for our listeners, though, Angular does this all the time with things like route directives and route providers and uh, HTTP providers, which are actually arrays of little services that are all getting registered at the same time. And as a consumer, you just use that one name and you get whatever is in that bundle. Uh, and that's the kind of flexibility you're talking about, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So another thing where, yeah, it's the tyranny of choice because it's it. I think there's a way to play Angular too, where you just pretend everything's flat. Like you could say, ah, you know, I only have one level of DI and I only have this, but all that other stuff is tempting you. One of the things that's tempting you is now you don't just have promises; you've got promises and observables. Oh yeah. I noticed, I noticed you've been having fun with that recently. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you, Angular 2 is is very clearly uh, uh, bought into, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but they're they back the idea of these uh, reactive extensions for JavaScript, RxJS, and and everything you can convert to a promise when you need to, but everything it seems is a some sort of an observable sequence. HTTP client being probably the most prominent thing that uh, we would have consumed from Angular as as a promise traditionally now as a RxJS stream or observable sequence, whatever you want to call it. The event emitters, which you have now warned me is not supposed to be a stream, but, uh, I mean, you know, clearly there are mechanics in Angular that uh, have bought very heavily into the RxJS mindset. And um, I don't know if it was this show or if it was JavaScript Jabber. I know you, somebody had people talking about RxJS not so long ago. And there was a moment where it became very clear to me that it was a good choice. Up until that, I was like, oh, promises are so much more simple. Like, why is there so much complexity? I've seen a bunch of presentations on RxJS, and it never, like, once clicked for me as a good idea. It just felt like a lot of people solving a lot of problems that I didn't have. And, <laughs> and you, know, oh, you, know, well, you know, the you know, because you think about a lot of the apps that people build, or maybe I'm only talking to myself, like, they're primarily, you know, Ajax-driven CRUD applications, maybe really huge, really robust CRUD applications, but for the most part, like the logic, you know, probably not uh, stunningly complex. And and promises did the job, and they and they do it with such a simple API that while promises are their own learning hurdle, it's a much smaller hurdle. Then you figure out that oh, you can do all these really interesting and clever things with promises, and you can sort of branch chaining logic and and so on and so forth. But when you guys had on uh, someone talking about promises. Uh, RxJS, and they said, oh, one of the best things about it is you can cancel a promise, right? So, like, imagine you, I'm sorry, you can cancel a stream, an RxJS stream. So, imagine you make an HTTP request, and then you need to destroy a view. You can't do that with a promise. So, then you have to build in all this sort of hackery to say, well, if this promise comes back, and my view has been destroyed, or it's no longer a relevant request, I have to ignore it, or I have to do something that says, you know, don't cause a problem for the user. And you can just call dot unsubscribe on a, on, a, on a sequence, on an observable sequence, and it cancels. You know, and that was like, that was the moment I was like, oh, yeah, that's, oh my God, how many times have I tripped over the fact that I have to do all this crazy stuff with promises, and I can just cancel a stream? Like, okay, this is definitely something I want to learn about. And streams, are definitely an uphill battle in and of themselves. There's a ton of operators, and and they work differently than promises, especially when it comes to error handling. They're very different. But I feel like every day now I'm sort of tripping over something and then figuring out and thinking, to myself, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I could see how this is actually really powerful. So, But again, like, it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, I had my stroke, and now... I have to relearn everything. And not only do I have to relearn everything, but the API for everything 
is much more complex than it used to be. And it's, it's an adventure for sure. The API for everything is more complex than it used to be. Do you want to stand by that? Or do you want to say that there are certain things that are that way? <laughs> it feels like everything, but you know, I, I think I'm probably in that drinking from the fire hose phase of learning. And it, it just feels like there's a lot there. Yeah. I mean, like, I've barely gotten, I haven't even touched routing yet. I mean, I've been digging into Angular 2 for like a month and a half. And beyond the tour of heroes, I have not even gotten to routing. So there's a lot to learn. Sure. Yeah, I know change detection is one of those things that's been oh, so much fun for you. Well, change detection is another one. So in Angular 1, I'm you know, far more familiar with Angular 1. So I have sort of a bias of knowledge at this point, right? Like I can look at Angular 1 and say, oh, that must have been much easier to learn because I know it. Angular 2, I don't have that uh, that luxury. So there are things that probably bit me the same as they did before, but now they feel so much more daunting. Change detection is one of those things where when it works, and it does work most of the time in this really seamless, really uh, easy way where I don't really have to think about it at all. But, you know, you could say the same for Angular 1. I never really had to think about it. Until it breaks, and then it breaks in a way that I don't know how to solve yet. Or it breaks in a way where solving it seems hacky. Like, it feels like there's I some... Remember, I remember, Ben, that it was felt like that, and then I had to learn dollar apply. And when you first hit an async thing that wasn't one of their async things, right. and it wouldn't come back, in Angular 1, you would tear your hair out for the longest time until <laughs> somebody showed you dollar apply, and then, like, the light turned on and you never had that problem again um, I, I think that may be what we're encountering here uh, but, but you have to go through it again uh, to your point there are the it's like the stroke you said you know you, you just you have to discover it again in a different way yeah it's true and and then I, and I think it is so obviously angular 2 they've had a, a strong focus on performance. And I think it is totally reasonable and totally acceptable to take the position that we made some choices that are angled for performance. And in 99% of cases, it works exactly like you'd expect. And in 1% of cases, it doesn't. And that's a trade-off. It's not a bug. It's a trade-off. And you just have to be aware of it. And I think that that's totally fine. And I hope that that's sort of where I, I settle in. But there is some interesting, like, creating a custom NG model binding for a component. I still can't figure that out without... Oh, you've tried, have you tried it yet? Yeah, yeah. And I still can't figure it out without using a set timeout. Because what happens is, right, so the way ng-model works, not to get too technical here, and I, I don't want to give misinformation either, but the way ng-model works is at the particular component level, there's a, the provider is looking for this value accessor. And you have to provide a value accessor that tells ng-model when something's changed, and then ng-model can tell it when external data has changed, now you need to synchronize the view. And if you look at the way things like the input boxes and the select menus are wired up, like they all use this uh, default value accessor, and it works perfectly well because they turn around and they just mutate the DOM properties. Like if you check a box, they turn around and set some property on the input, and it works totally fine. If you try to do it with something that doesn't mutate the DOM directly, like let's say you have a, some sort of a fancy checkbox where I'm not actually setting a checked property based on this value accessor. Let's say I'm changing the interpolated value of a view in my component. 
what happens is Eng- as Angular tells, you know, ng-model that some sort of data has changed and then ng-model tells your value accessor that data has changed and then you take that change and you try to apply it to your component internally and Angular says, oh, you can't do that because we've already run change detection on your component and now you're changing the value after that change detection is run and that's not going to work in production, so don't do that. So you have to put a set timeout because the set timeout is wired into the zone JS and the zone JS will trigger another digest or you know, change detection. And I don't know, it's, I have not figured out how to do it yet without a set timeout and it feels really hacky. But part of it is frustrating because I feel like I'm responding to the data that Angular is giving me. And it's the same thing. I ran into a very similar issue recently with query lists where query list is essentially like a live query against the DOM and a view or content. And you can run into these weird circular situations where Angular says, oh, hey, by the way, your query list has been changed. And then if you take that query list value and you try to use it to update the view, you run into the same problem because you've already run change detection on the view and the change detection on the view then updated the query list. And then you're trying to use the change in the query list to update the view. And you get this weird sort of cyclic relationship. But at the same time, it's like, well, but Angular told me about that data. So now you're telling me that the data that Angular told me about is not safe to use? Not this cycle. Not this cycle. You'll have to wait one. But there's an awful lot you can do, but you do have to, yeah, yeah. set time out as your friend. (laughs) Well, right, right, 100%. And and I'm hoping hoping that it's just a, look, that's the 1% of situations. It's a little bit harder to use because you have to know that. And once you know it, you know it, and then, you know, life can move on. But it's, you know, you running into those and then figuring out why they're not working and how to make them work. It's hard to, say, go into the Angular 2 source code and figure that out. In Angular 1, it was actually relatively simple to do that. There was, like, one loop that just kept running, right, until, uh, until no more change detection was found. You could look in that loop. It was, like, 50 lines of code and say, oh, okay, that's why it's breaking. Oh, and here's where something gets run at the end of a, of a digest. Now I can do an evaluate sync and so on and so forth. In Angular 2, just, just looking through the source code of Angular 2 is... Much harder than it was in Angular 1. It's way, it's much harder code than Angular 1 code. Yeah. No question about it. But it's great. It's great. I'm loving it. (laughs) It's exciting. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to, sorry, I don't mean to cast or paint any kind of a somber picture here. It's really fun to learn. And I'm in no way regretting learning about it. No, I think that's what I'm getting from listening to you is that there are new tricks of the trade and it's frustrating to have to, you know, where where you had great competence before to have to realize that that doesn't apply and to go back through it again. And that's always the challenge of moving you know, moving from one issue of a framework to another or from one framework to another. So I feel you. And I think it's important for our listeners to feel that and to feel your enthusiasm at the same time. It's one of those things that's going to be all right, but it's, you're going to, you're going to suffer like we always suffer. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And I will say not to argue over milliseconds, but I do know that I did some sort of very unscientific performance testing with Angular 1, specifically in comparison with React.js, which is, you know, obviously the hot, cool kid on the block. And some things that did not perform as well in Angular 1 perform faster in Angular 2 when compared with React. Not everything, but, but some of the stuff that I was looking at. So clearly the, the focus on performance in Angular 2 has paid off. In a, in a very practical way. How about the mental model, Ben? Do you feel like, I mean, you, you toyed with React. 
but you're, you you have this Angular one, the Angular two experience. Do you feel aside, you know details aside? Do you feel that the, there's a huge shift in the mental model going from Angular one to Angular two, or does it feel like kind of the same? Or how would you compare the mental model to say to, to say your experience with React? Yeah, sure. I think okay. So my big win for Angular is just that it's a more robust solution. React is interesting in what it does, and it's very fast at what it does. But what it does is very small in scope, really. And all of the things that Angular gives you for free, not that they're all simple to use, but they're free, you would have had to invent for yourself or you'd have to, you know, use some sort of a community driven project, which I happen to love the fact that Angular is backed, so to speak, depending on how you want to look at it, by a large company that's heavily invested in using it internally and heavily invested in making it uh, good for people outside of its own company and and that brings a, a cohesiveness to the platform that i think you don't have in react and as much as i think uh, jsx like the inline html is interesting to work with i think having actual html is actually a much more simple mental model you you see a custom component on the page and that is the custom component that's rendered you don't have to worry about the fact that, well, that's actually being replaced with other HTML as part of a render function. And well, what if I want to pass in custom CSS to a particular React component? Well, now I have to expose some sort of a prop that accepts that and then make sure to apply that prop to the rendered HTML. And with Angular, it's just you're dealing with HTML. Like You want to add a new class to it outside of the component? Just do that. You want, to add, sorry, you want to add custom CSS and styling and have other uh, events bound to it, like click handlers and whatnot. Like you don't have to worry about this sort of passing everything down and then hoping that it gets rendered inside of a particular React component. So, so in that respect, I find the Angular mental model uh, far easier to wrap my head around. Yeah, and then as you say, there's probably an inventory of things that you just expect to be in Angular and that you'd have to go shopping for in React. I mean, like off the top of my head, I'm, I'm guessing that dependency injection is one of them, or just, is that baked in over there? No, I don't think, because it's, you're, I mean, unless you have some other framework, I'd re- React is, to my knowledge, really strictly just the rendering of views. It does nothing else for you. Mm-hmm. So, there's, so there's no built-in logic for components to talk to each other? or the equivalent of whatever a directive is there to interact with something else, you have to figure out how everything is going to coordinate with everything else? It's, I mean, I don't want to speak out of turn here because I'm not really a React developer. I've, I've, I've learned a bit because it's interesting, but uh, even you know, there's a lot of, and you see this even in, in um, Redux with, uh, with Dan Abramov and, and the way that all of his stuff is wired together and kind of bound to components in React. There's all of this sort of like, I don't know if this is the right term, but all this like functional composition where I'm taking a render thing and I'm, I'm attaching it to another render thing that's being attached to a service. And it's like, in order to actually get something to output on the screen, you have to build this, at least in my perspective, is this really complicated mental model of how all of these things are sort of wrapping around each other and connecting to stores and dealing with events. And it's, You're speaking my language, Ben. Now, it's, I'm it's sure frustrating. Joe's got to come in here. Joe. You got to tell us why we're all wrong over here. Why we're all wrong? Well, you know, it's definitely a different mental model with React. You got to look at React more like my data is now the way that it is because of something that changed. User did something. 
I got a something over a web socket and some data has changed, whatever it is, data is now different. And then you just take that data and you just got a whole bunch of functions that turn that data into HTML, right? And it's your whole entire app feels like is, is exactly like that. My data is in a state. Whatever state it is, the application now looks like this because the data is in this state. When you can think of React in that sense, then it makes a lot of then it you know it becomes simple and straightforward. Really, because Ben Ben and I have no problem with the idea that data is going to change and it's going to come at us and the user (laughs) is going to do something. Hey, we're feeling pretty comfortable with that. It's when you start saying, what do I have to do to learn about that and flow it around? that the wheels come off for me. And I take it, Ben, that, that that's what you're saying. For you well, so speaking of data, I think the big win for React was Flux and, and you know, more specifically Redux. That seems to be the winning horse in the race. Right. If, React if, without those things is much less. Well, I'd say useful. React without those things is, is still interesting. It's very well, interesting, but what much I less wonder, useful for web developers. <laughs> what I wonder is if React, if uh, Redux, for example, came out as a thing before React, and someone said, "Oh, hey, what if we use this Redux thing in Angular? What if we use this Redux thing in in Ember, whatever?" Right, and then React comes out and says, "Hey, I can also consume Redux, guys." Like, I feel like people would be like, "Oh, okay, you know, good luck with that." I, I also do it, except now with a you know rendering model that makes a lot more sense to me personally. I think React won popularity because of the simple data flow, but the simple data flow is not necessarily what React is. Like you can take Redux and use it in an Angular application, right. and it makes right. it makes a lot of sense. And then yeah, the you know, data now, flow is now. sort of assumed to be part of React, when in reality it isn't. React just happens, it just so happens that everybody that does React is using Redux, some type of flux. We're going to have to have a whole show on why Redux is a complete loser. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, see where my, you know, where I'm standing. In the next six to eight months when we find out that everybody in Angular 2 is using Redux, it's going to be a Will sad you change your day. Tune? <laughs> it's a sad day, and I win the argument every time I have it with somebody, and we get down to the one thing that matters, which is code. You show me yours, I'll show you mine, and we'll see what happens. All the rest. That's, not, the only, that's not what matters, Ward. That's not at all. That's that's why to do app syndrome exists, which is it's not matter. It does, it's not about what framework is best. Is what framework looks best in a to do app. It uh, I'm matter. talking paradigms. You, I'm ready. Uh, look, I've already won the to do app. <laughs> <laughs> now the question is, let's scale it up. Let's start taking it somewhere. But I, I win. The thing that that is amazes me is that I win. At every scale of complexity, small to large. That's. But I'm sorry. This is the Ben show. I just they just got me going, Ben. What can I tell you? Okay, we'll have Andy put it on the schedule, <laughs> and we'll derail and I this ben back to my Ben. My corner on this one because I know because Ben is the voice of reason. This is one of the things I like about your. Podcast. You, it, it's it's not an argument that can be won or lost. You have to go build a hundred thousand line app in both paradigms and run them and maintain them for about a year and a half, then you'll know which one wins or loses. Well, business. since nobody has ever done that in Redux. No, no that's not at all true. I don't no, believe No, there's, there's tons of apps that are Okay, we got to save this for another episode. We're saving it. All right, sorry. sorry. <laughs> this is your fault, Ben, that we got to. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> I'm holding you personally responsible. 
Anyway, so Ben, what are you doing about Redux? <laughs> How is that entering your life? Is it entering your life? Well, I've I've used Redux in a, I mean in research in an Angular One app, and uh, there's a lot of stuff to me that makes sense. I, I think people get overboard. Like you, you take this. I mean, I don't want to get into it. Obviously, I don't want to distract here. But when you start talking about all of these plugins that people build for Redux, and now you're taking what was a synchronous uh, single point of truth for an application and now you're building all these plugins that handle asynchronicity and now parts of your of your reducers depend on the fact that there are these asynchronous plugins like now you're taking what was the beauty and the simplicity of of a store and making it all crazy the same way that your original app was crazy and i don't know i mean that's very naive on my part i don't have a ton of experience but that's that's how i feel about it and with that i think we should get to the picks Joe, do you have some picks for us? Oh, I definitely have picks. Just for fun, I'm going to pick Redux and Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Every week he has to put his finger right in Ward's eye. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) While I'm at it, I'll pick something that I have been enjoying lately, and that is XCOM 2. I purchased the game XCOM 2. It's a PC game. I think it maybe it plays on Mac. I don't know. I don't try to game on my Mac. That's why I own a PC, so I have to worry about it. But uh, it's been a great game, the XCOM game, the first one, which was, a, of course, a remake of an old XCOM game, was awesome. And this one, I've only been playing it a little bit, but it's been really fun so far, and it's gotten really good reviews. So I'm very excited to continue playing that and having a lot of time, and that's going to be my, my main pick for today. All right, Ward, what are your picks? Well, it's pretty easy. I'm going to pick Ben's blog because every time I go in there, I am absolutely fascinated by the questions that Ben is exploring in Angular 2 and Angular 1 also. Uh, he's always poking at a sore spot or an interesting spot. So I'm, uh, we got to have that link on there, and I really think people should go see what he's doing. All right, Lucas, what are your picks? My picks, I have two of them this week. Uh, the first one is an article that Ben Lesh just posted called Learning Observable by Building Observable. And he really just breaks down kind of the underlying mechanisms of an observable. It's really well written, easy to follow, and apparently it is a six-minute read. It took me a little longer, but uh, really, really cool. My second uh, pick this week is um, a drink that I call a Lulu. And it's basically two shots of raspberry syrup, two (laughs) shots of espresso, ice, and a Red Bull. And it is delicious. I've been drinking for about 10 years. I love them. And uh, so it's raspberry syrup, espresso, and a Red Bull on ice. Incredibly refreshing. And uh, those are my two picks. But that takes care of your trying to go to sleep at night, doesn't it? (laughs) I was going to say. It just murders it. I'm surprised. You don't talk a whole lot faster. (laughs) <laughs> with a whole lot more right, anyway <laughs> all that sugar and caffeine holy cow uh i've got a couple of picks uh the first one is dropbox uh, dropbox has kind of become core to the way that i do the podcast and everything else uh, it's the way that i get the podcast episodes to mandy it's the place where i archive all of my stuff when uh, my hard drive gets full because I have a backup system that records these calls to my hard drive as well as to the the hardware that I use to record 
And anyway, I just really, really like it. I also want to pick the podcast wrap, and this was shared in Podcaster's Paradise, which is a community run by John Lee Dumas, if you've listened to Entrepreneur on Fire. Great stuff. Um, but anyway, that that was really funny. And as a podcaster, I just I, I wound up laughing through the whole thing because it's, it's hilarious. Uh, and finally, I just want to throw a few things out there as far as if you want to meet up. I'm still working out the exact location, but March 30th and 31st, I'm going to be in San Francisco for Build, which is the Microsoft conference. Ta-da! Somebody's chime anyway so um if you're in the san francisco area and you want to get together the best thing that you can do is probably to go subscribe to the mailing list um if you go to adventuresinangular.com you know you can get the podcast episodes emailed to you and anyway that's awesome stuff so then i'm sending emails out to everybody who gets those to let you know uh after san francisco i'm flying on the first and i'll be there from the first to the seventh i'll be in las vegas so uh, Las Vegas, I'm going to be there for MicroConf, but I am going to do a meetup there. All of these places, I'll probably just get together for dinner with a whole bunch of folks. So yeah, so if you're going to be there, uh, or if you live there, you're going to be there for some event, let me know. And then finally, uh, in July, I'm going to be in Chicago. So if you want to meet up and you're in that area, let me know, and we will definitely pull it together. In Chicago, I know actually quite a few people that are closer friends, and so I may have a little get-together just with them and then have a larger get-together with anybody who listens to the shows that I don't really know personally. But anyway, so yeah, so those are my picks. Ben, what are your picks? So I have a couple of picks, but they all sort of fall under a single category, so I'll preempt them and then I'll just list them. But there's a series of articles and presentations that I think are really, really interesting in the fact that they talk very much about being practical and pragmatic and and not dogmatic and not, you know, one rule to rule everything and, and always doing something a specific way, but, but rather being reasonable in why you're doing things and accepting the fact that you won't always make the right choices and how you can go back on choices and refactor. And sometimes you refactor to ways that don't look good because they make it easier to work with and so on and so forth. But uh, I, I think in an age where I think we're inundated with a, this is the right way to do it and this is the framework you should use and, and you know data should all be immutable and you should always use functional programming and so on and so forth. And it's great to see some people coming out and saying, well, yeah, but be reasonable and be practical and think about things in, in a way that makes your life easier and has a, a you know a value add, so on and so forth. So the articles are um, one called Write Code That Is Easy to Delete, Not Easy to Extend by a guy named Tef. Um, the Wrong Abstraction by Sandy Metz, and who doesn't love Sandy Metz? Kyle Simpson had a wonderful presentation recently called The Economy of Keystrokes, talking about... Uh, uh, how the readability of code, especially in an ES6 transpiled world, is uh, is something that you should really think about how you're using appropriately. And then I haven't finished it yet, but uh, a presentation which I think Kyle mentioned by this guy Rich Hickey called "Simple Made Easy." And and I'll say that Rich Hickey has a quote in his presentation that says, uh, "As programmers, we know the value of everything and the cost of nothing." And, and he says in the presentation that, you know, we're, this is why we jump from, you know, hot technology to hot technology, because all we see is the value add and we never consider the trade-offs and, uh, and the things that things don't do well. And uh, particularly that, that feels very meaningful to me in an Angular 2 context where there are things that are difficult, but there are things that are really great. And it's not all about everything is super easy. It's about trade-offs and being practical and, 
and choosing things for educated reasoning. And uh, those are my picks. Awesome. Before I ask you where people can uh, follow your stuff or, you know, read these awesome articles that Ward keeps raving about, uh, there is another announcement that I want to put out there, and that is the NGConf team sent out an NGConf Innovation Award recognition for individuals who are changing the world of Angular. Uh, you can make your nominations up through March 31st, and I think we really have some great people on this show that deserve nominations, which is why I'm bringing it up. Uh, Ward and John have both done quite a bit to put together the documentation. They have also uh, – John ha- uh, did a lot of work on the Tour of Heroes and I think you know deserves recognition for that. Ward for his work on the documentation that is actually the official documentation. Uh, Lucas and Ben both do blogging and other training that helps people figure this stuff out and helps us explore what we're doing and why we're doing it that way. And so this is my way of just saying, look, we got a lot of awesome people out there in the community. And, you know, so go ahead and nominate these guys and give them some recognition for that. And Ben, uh, where do people follow up with your stuff? Sure. So my website is bennadel.com. And then I'm also at bennadel on Twitter, which is probably the fastest way to get in touch with me. I'm pretty poor about email communication. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, We'll go ahead and wrap this show up, and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today.